other thing you have to watch out we do work with live animals on this show okay so there right. there could be an owl that shows up in your office there there might be an ass showing up here i'm not sure <laughs> oh i'm already here oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay all right cover your ass <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting, where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live, and there's lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Howdy, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam. Sammy. Don, I want a monopoly. How can I have a monopoly on something? I don't necessarily, I don't want a monopoly <laughs> on sobriety, but I want a monopoly, okay? Well, you got to watch it. You'll go straight to jail. <laughs> For you monopoly fans out there. <laughs> oh, our guest, who we have not yet introduced, is holding up a monopoly board game. Mm. Shrink wrapped. How original version of a not monopoly <laughs> also known as monotony uh, <laughs> don how are you what's going on man i'm good you know a friend of mine said you got to know this i was watching andy of mayberry and barty said otis is drunk again i put him in the cell he's boiled as an owl no way so boiled as an owl referenced by Andy of Mayberry. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> the Andy Griffith Show. How cool. Yeah. It's Which a, is a North Carolina based thing. I don't yeah. know if it was filmed there, but it was, yeah, well, it was. What? It was, yeah. Yeah. It was. How uh, cool. Yeah, very cool. So the, it's an expression that at least had currency in the 60s. <laughs> it surely did. And, and for folks who don't know, the Andy Griffith show, a black and white TV show, a town sheriff, and Otis the town drunk would actually lock himself up in the cell and it would be unlocked, <laughs> but he would just close the door behind him and sleep it off. <laughs> well, you know, we got the name. It's actually a big book reference. Page 158. I prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn that I'd never touch another drop, but by nine o'clock, I'd, I'd be, be boiled as an owl. <laughs> I always just love that expression. You know, that Andy of Mayberry thing of Otis locking himself up when he's drunk, it's like, okay, I know I'm drunk. I'll just lock myself up. Uh <laughs> you know, dude, I re I called. <laughs> All right, towards the end of my drinking, drunk as hell. I'm out walking and I stop at the police department in this little tiny town. You know, it's, this is late at night. I'm walking my dog. I asked them to get me a ride home. And so they stuck me in the dog and, and drove me two blocks to the house. So that was one time. Nice. There was another time that I, and I barely remember this, but this conversation has brought it back. I wanted them to lock me up in, in their drunk tank. And they were like, we're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and they wouldn't do it <laughs> but i wanted them to lock me up like otis you couldn't turn yourself in no i lived in key west and that had a very small police force mm -hmm. i was there for about nine months my roommate that i was staying with it came it was like two o'clock at night blue lights outside of the trailer where we're living I went out there and the policeman poured him out of a police car, gave him, here, you take him. He's drunk. Had brought him home. He told me that we had to go the next day to the police station, to the jail. And we went to the jail. The reason we had to go was to get his bicycle because they locked up his bicycle. We went in and they unlocked the cell and got his bicycle out. His bicycle so, was in the cell. Yeah. So what they did was he was like drunk driving on his bicycle. And, you know, it's like, like Barney Fife is too kind hearted to yeah. actually lock up the drunk himself and just locks up the bicycle and, and gave gave this guy a ride home so that sounds like it was it came out of a sitcom <laughs> <laughs> it, it totally does well I, you know our drinking it 
has moments of complete despair, but there's great hilarity in some of our behavior. Oh, there is indeed. And actually, there is some hilarity in our despair when we look back on some of it. That, that, well, it is. Looking back on it, let's bring our guest in. Introduce yourself. Hey there, Don. And hey, Sam. I'm Susan. And hey, I Susan. am a recovering alcoholic today. It has not always been so. We are so glad to have you on the show. And I know for a fact that you have some moments of uh, hilarious despair in your background. That's well, what that, I want to hear. That is true. If you can live through those moments, you will look back and laugh because as the big book says, we are not a glum lot. Indeed. So I was listening to you all and I really like the bald owl explanation. I had no idea where it came from, and I've read that their big book before. You missed. Oh, there's something new in that book every I, time you read it. That's right. I Stuff remember hides. hearing it at some point. But yeah, <laughs> it's a really neat thing. Yeah, Susan, when did you get sober? Um, Don, I started trying in 1986. I was. Uh, I was 26 years old. I had a moment of clarity. I woke up in the morning and I felt as diseased from head to toe as I'd ever felt in my life. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that uh, the picture, because I'm a very visual person, the picture of that smoker's lung versus the pretty pink, healthy non-smoker's lung that they show you to terrify you away from smoking when you're in like the fifth or sixth grade came to mind. And that's how I felt inside from head to toe. I just felt, I just felt diseased. Wow. That's the only word I can, I can say. And I was 26 and I thought this has something to do with my drinking. I'm not sure what, but it has something to do with it. I just sat dazed kind of thinking about that. But then I, look, I reached for the phone book and I called every number in the phone book that had anything to do with alcohol. To this day, I have no idea who this woman was, but when I called the Salisbury Care Unit, a woman answered the phone and she talked to me for a good while. When I was talking with her, something got sparked in me and I I couldn't describe it, but when I hung up the phone, I realized that I felt something I had not felt in a very long time and what I felt was hope that just because I started drinking when I was 13. And so now at age 26, I had this moment of clarity. I've been drinking half my life. The last eight years that I've been out of the house, I'd been living that groundhog day over and over and over. I did not have to keep living it over and over. That There was a place I could go that would teach me how to have that not be the truth, how to have a different life. Did, did she tell you about Alcoholics Anonymous or was it she, a treatment center? What? Yeah, she told me about uh, treatment. She told me about the treatment center. She said there were lots of different treatment centers and that, you know, at that time. Um, okay, so I got to tell you this part because this, my mom, I love my mom and she has always been I would say my strongest spiritual mentor. And so I kept that drinking part of my life very separate from anything having to do with my mom. And after I got off the phone and I talked to this woman and I felt hope and I knew that somehow my illness, my sick, sick feeling had to do with this half a life, all of my adult life of drinking. I called my mom and I'll say, I yanked my covers. I said, mom, (laughs) I've got a problem with drinking. I need you to come down here and talk to me. So she came to my apartment and I don't remember a whole lot about the next few days because uh, evidently I had the uh, close to the DTs, if not full blown DTs. I don't remember a whole lot about it. My mom told me that I was shaking and sweating profusely and talking to people who weren't there and saying things that were out of my head and hallucinating, but I don't remember any of that. But what I remember is we shocked treatment centers. We did not know that alcohol withdrawal was potentially deadly. 
And so she literally piled me into the car during that time. And we went to the Crawford Center. But we went there. I don't remember it, but I had an assessment. (laughs) We went to the Salisbury Care Unit where I had talked to that lovely woman on the phone. And we went to Fellowship Hall. And I was one of my excuses because I'll say my mom was my greatest enabler unknowingly because uh, she would write me checks when I kind of (sighs) exasperatedly told her about my sad sorrow for life of not earning as much as you guys, you know, and Mm -hmm. I would say things like um, moms will do that. I mean, all moms do. My mom did that. Oh, wow. Grandmothers do that too. That was one of my men's. Yeah. It was for me too. And look, I'm fortunately able to live part of that amend today because my mom is 90 now and she is in the skilled care unit at the retirement home. And and I got her into the skilled care unit two months before COVID, which is a real godsend. So, but being my spiritual mentor, uh, we, and, you know, just loving her, I allowed her to pull me into the car and we shot treatment centers and, and, uh, I had to tell her that because we, they ask these questions about insurance when you get to those daggum treatment centers. And, and I had right. to tell her, mom, you know, uh, I don't have any insurance. And I had many times used the crafty little manipulation of, well, Susan, how are things going? Well, mom, everything's good. But, you know, on a waitress's salary, I just can't, I just can't make ends meet. I think I'm going to have to just let my insurance go. Lord God, you can't let your insurance go. Let me write you a check. Not the insurance company, me. So she was surprised. So you still had no insurance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still the had truth no came insurance. out. Yeah. And she started to connect the dots. Oh, this might be a little bit more serious than she let on. Where did but you land? By the time we got the the insurance stuff straightened out, you know, Don, I started to feel better physically. And I said, Mama, I think we can save about $5,000 because that's how much a month the treatment was. I said, I think and just go to that AA meeting I've been waiting on at Shoney's for about, I don't know. You knew about a meeting that met at Shoney's restaurant. Oh, Don, I know this part of the story and it's good. Run with it, girl. That's right. I had been waiting on them for about six months. And those people came in and they looked happy and they called themselves AAs. You know, they called themselves alcoholics and they met in the private dining room. And I would go in and kind of, you know, pour coffee and just check them out as they ate eggs in the morning. Was this a regular meeting or was this a. It was. And they met in a restaurant. They met in the private dining room of the Shoney's, and it was 10 o'clock in the morning. They ate eggs from the breakfast bar. Some of them came in early and sat in booths with each other one-on-one. They had intense conversations, and then they all went back to the private dining room. And and, uh, that morning, I went in, and I sat down and at the coffee pots, of course, because I was going to continue to serve them. But they came around and introduced themselves, and I said, I'm Susan, I'm your waitress, and I'm an alcoholic. And in, in my memory, they all stood up and cheered and said, we've been waiting for you. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm sure that's not really what happened, though. They probably just welcomed me and said, glad you're here. Keep coming back. Wow, but it felt like that. It felt like that. And there was a lady in the rooms. Her name was Doris. And Doris greeted me like Lovey Howell would have greeted me on Gilligan's Island with just (laughs) the, she was the hostess with the mostess. And she took me around and she told me things like, we're going to get you some women's phone numbers and don't take phone numbers from the men. And she, she told me what I should be doing. You just didn't know uncertain terms, explain things to me. It was very nice. I felt like I had a mentor who I could ask questions to. Did you dive into AA? 
Was that uh, it? Was that the end of your drinking? Oh, no. They they required much too much effort. They they wanted to, like, tell me I needed to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I oh. was like, oh, my gosh, y'all must be so much sicker than I am. Really. <laughs> Plus, I knew my drinking was a problem. I was using a whole lot of other substances uh, at that time. Like, what do you have? Um, <laughs> Some what do you have? Yeah. And some I'll right. take some of this. That's right. And don't know, sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. oh. uh, so so I I really thought alcohol was my only problem and, and I heard selectively. And they also said there were no requirements except a desire to stop drinking. And I really didn't know whether I had that or not. So I thought, well, they said keep coming back. You know, and they got to this part in the big book. If you're not sure, go to any bar room or <laughs> bar room and try to control your drinking. And I thought, well, this is great. So I kept doing things kind of a little bit uh, shy of what they were suggesting. Well, I tell you, all my old friends were saying, damn, Susan, we've been telling you, you just need to get a grip on it. And now all my new friends and acquaintances were telling me, hey, you know, there's another way. But if you don't believe us, try to control your drinking. And I thought that would be a great experiment. And so I did try that. I never could control my drinking. How long did the experiment go on? Well, let's see. It was May 2nd of 86 when I picked up my first starter chip. And it was May 7th of 88 when I picked up my last one and I really like I had to let it be known why I picked that one up because like I didn't get fucked up before I went to an AA meeting I saved those joints till afterwards and I didn't do lines (laughs) unless I was getting ready to do something really exciting and I didn't use those pills unless I knew where I was going to be and who I was going to be with And so, you know, I didn't like offend you all with my use. It sounds like you you were a respectable drug addict. I was. I was. I want you to know I respected. I kept that stuff separate. But I'll tell you, I finally had my higher power, the source, God, grace, whatever you want to refer to that that good part of me, that good orderly direction, that part of me that's bigger than me, that's part of you and probably bigger than you, that part of me started to kick in. And all of a sudden, one day I was sitting in a meeting and I literally gasped because I realized I had a conscience. And what really shocked me was that I was unaware that I had detached from my conscience. Ooh, yeah, that's that's good. So you felt ashamed? I did. I felt ashamed. I felt like all of a sudden I had been untrue to the values that that really resonated with the deepest core part of my being. And that was different. I didn't understand why I saw so many people in the rooms and heard people in the rooms who made sense to me in a way that I really did want what they had, and I could not put a finger on what was different. I had uh, two bags of that Marahichi stuff that they now sell some places out there in the drugstores. It's legal. Dang. Well, it wasn't when I was buying it, and I had two of those illegal bags, and I decided that I was going to stop using that that story somehow, Dr. Alcoholic Addict, now acceptance was the answer, made sense to me in a way that I hadn't understood it before. And well, well I got to interrupt you. Did yeah, was it pain that gave you the? Uh, I'm trying to get at what what it was that gave you the willingness to look at what you were doing a different way. And was it pain or was it shame or conscious? What, I mean, where did it come from? You know, hopefully Don, it was a combination of all of that. But when you first said it, I thought, well, it was desire. I mean, all of a sudden I desired 
what I saw in others, but could not get a handle on. Wow. I wanted, but it was shame and it was guilt and it was all of those other things. It was all the pain because I realized that what was different between them and me, because I'd been sitting in these rooms for a couple of years with these folks going out, you know, getting to know them but not letting them get to know me because I had this one secret part of my life. Mm -hmm. And so it dawned on me that that was the disconnect for me. Mm. And so with these two bags of really good pot, I decided that I could not let them go. I couldn't just dump them out. So I took a ride and I got lost in three different cities that night, rolled a couple joints out of each one, smoked my head off. And then I'm having... Uh, this may sound unbelievable, but I'm having a conversation with God and I'm saying, I know that I'm telling you I'm going to quit. And this looks like I'm not quitting, but I swear these are going to be my last joints and I'm quitting. I'm headed back to my mom's house where I was living. I said, well, OK, God, help me with this one because I'm getting ready to go into my mama's house. I know she's going to be up waiting for me. You know, how am I going to explain this one? Because I'm like stoned as a bat. And what I heard was, it, it came to me, tell your mom that you're having a conversation with me and that you need to go do some writing. And so I went to the door. My mom was right on the other side when I opened it. She said, hey, how's your evening been? I said, mom, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I'm having a conversation with God and I need to go do some writing. And I'll talk to you at breakfast in the morning. She said, okay. And I went upstairs and I got out my notebook and I started writing. And I, I fell asleep writing. And the next day I got up and I sold one of those bags. And I gave the other one to one of my good friends who thought he'd just gotten the best birthday present ever. <laughs> that was my last use. And it really, I think, is attributable to those two years that I was sitting in those meetings trying to do something different and didn't have a clue. And at that point, the steps began to make sense to me and the, the suggestions began to make sense to me. And I had had a sponsor. She had moved and she came back from New Jersey to give me my one year chip. And she came back again to give me that one-year chip when I was clean and sober. So you had a one-year chip that was not clean. Right. Yeah. Because I had not been talking to y'all about, hey, look, y'all set it up. The only requirement for membership was desire to stop drinking. Okay. Mm -hmm. That was my catch-22. And you reached and a place where you had to get honest with that. I had to get honest. And I will say that there were enough aha moments put in front of me with different people's stories, with that story in the big book, with my sponsor's marijuana maintenance program that didn't work for her that I frequently said under my breath, too bad for you. So, you know, because <laughs> you were doing it, you were on the marijuana, yeah. marijuana well, and what, what shows up is that, um, you know, you picked up that chip, that dirty chip. Yeah. Um, and that's where you were at the time. I was. We keep our own score. But yes. the thing that I find continues to happen is that my sense of integrity grew. Yes. While I've been in this program, it continues to grow. Yes. And so keeping my own score, you know, my integrity is what led me to reset my sobriety date nearly nine years into recovery. Exactly. Um, and it's because I can't. I can't not do that. I have right. to. Right. I couldn't lie to myself anymore. But yeah. all that time you're in recovery, it matters which way we're facing. And yes. And I think, you know, I think that it was being in recovery that was leading. It's leading. So because I, when I quit drinking, I've been sober a long time. I've felt continuously led the whole time. I'm always, you know, we talk about peeling the onion. Yes. I'm always diving deeper and going to a deeper level and letting go at a different place, you know, deeper and yes. deeper. It's all, so it's all one continuum. Yes. And Don, 
along those same lines, you know, I still have aha moments because of my recovery. For example, yesterday, my partner. <laughs> for example, I, yesterday. That's what I like. Let's there you come go. Right. right. How is AA working for you today? Yeah. Well, yesterday, though, I was uh, out with my partner and a couple of new friends. And we're at the table. We're just having a little lunch and getting to know each other after pottery class. And the conversation came up about anger and how do you deal with anger? How do you work through things in relationships? And, you know, this is why I say I'm given this example from yesterday because I've been processing it today with my sponsor. And now I'm going to talk with you guys about it. And I've talked to my partner about it that one of the messages that I got when I was growing up, never go to bed angry. Any of y'all? Yeah, I got that message too. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have in my relationship history, by the way, I could very much relate to the big book where it says we were incapable of forming a true partnership with another human being. That was my experience in active alcoholism. So in that time, I had lots of relationships where I'd be mad as hell, but I'll be damned if I'm going to bed because I'm mad and we need to like get this settled. And so I would sleep on the couch. I would keep myself up. I would walk. I would, you know. That's not the way, that's not the way the, the suggestion is intended that you don't go to bed angry is that you will not go to sleep. Exactly. So I was a little bit crazed in my interpretations. I'll admit that. And that's what I've realized is that I still do that. I have these lingering beliefs that are attached to things from way back that I misinterpreted. And so yesterday, this guy says, well, you know, when we're mad at each other sometimes, or when one of us is angry, sometimes we just take a break. And the best thing to do is go to sleep. And then the next day we get up and things look different. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, of course. And this is what I've learned is that in recovery, I do sometimes go to bed angry because my body needs rest. And if I tend to first things first, if I tend to my sleep, if I check my halt and, you know, don't get too hungry, you know, eat when I'm hungry. Halt is hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Right. So if I really pay attention to those things, I can like find the solutions to get to that deeper level. And my thinking changes as a result. I think I just asked somewhere we pause when agitated. Yes. Go it doesn't yes. say it doesn't say that it's a brief pause. It just says that it's a pause. So it could be yes. taking it could be going to bed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it could be taking a couple days to do some writing and do some talking to my sponsor or my counselor or my coach or you know any of those people in my life another trusted confidant who you know, I just need a sounding board who I can trust to give me accurate feedback mm -hmm. so that I can see things from a perspective that I can't see them on my own. Yeah. And in that, I can really start to look at some different options than the ones I'm looking at on my own. And I think that's the biggest thing. I know that when I was a child, I learned about grief from experiencing it. The first experience I have deaths, that, but I, I was too young to really understand what that meant. But uh, when my dog was put down, I really, I really was devastated as a child. And yet my automatic response was to start giggling. And I think that was just, you know, the denial that we hear people talk about when things are too painful to yes. endure. We just, you know, our defenses come to the forefront. I didn't know that as a child. Fast forward to age 11, ripe old age of 11, my father died. He was sick one morning, gone that night, massive heart attack. And when I came home, I was, I was just in, a, in my head, just thinking about things. And I went upstairs to my room. People just crowded in the house like you can't believe. You know, my mom was 41 at the time. So my mom came upstairs and said, what do you need? What can I do for you? And I said, I just want to be alone and, and think. I was in shock. I didn't know that as an 11-year-old. I know that now as an adult. 
And my mom went downstairs. I was in my, my room and I started to cry. And I wasn't crying for my father's loss. I was crying because I was looking out the window and I was thinking about my dog champ. Yeah. And, and I thought as I was crying and feeling those feelings and as a child not knowing how to process that, I was thinking, don't tell anybody that you're thinking about your dog and crying when your father just died or they will put you in a straitjacket and lock you up. But they won't because that is as human as can be. I so get that. I so right. get where you were then. Yeah. Yeah. And so those experiences of childhood that shaped me and formed me are not necessarily the truth of what was happening, but they were the truth in my head and what I believed and what I solidified in my belief system as I was becoming an adult. Enter alcohol two years later and all kinds of drugs after that and everything in there gets warped and stirred around. And so I'm still separating out the truth from the fiction. You know, the, yeah. the fourth step inventory, I think refers to it in both the AA big book and the NA basic text as the fourth step is a process of sorting through the confusion and contradiction in our lives. And so that to me is what this great adventure of recovery is all about. It's like sorting through the confusion and contradiction in my life so that I can be the best human being I can be and not need to find those pain killers for what I have no clue how to deal with. Our learned behavior, the things that we learn in our youth are the things that we carry with us. And the fourth step is an inventory to look at all the things that I do spontaneously that just arise suddenly. I don't even think about it, but they feel right because they've always been the thing to do. And then in the fourth step, I discover what are the things that I do all the time that don't work? What are the things I do that fail, <laughs> that cause pain? And then I can try to live in such a way as to not react out of that. But I love to love that story. I was, and then we live a life of trying to be aware of what we're thinking and what we're doing. So to discover your, your anger, uh, your approach to anger, I was at a uh, family reunion for my wife's family. So I didn't know anybody there. I knew about a handful of people. There were 30 people. I'm not comfortable in crowds of strangers. Uh, never have been. I like mm -hmm. to drink in those situations <laughs> <laughs> to get out of the situation, but I don't drink anymore. So I had said a prayer in the morning to, because one of my character defects is to check out. I didn't want to do that. So I wanted to remain present and at one point I went to the bathroom. I was going, ah, I'm so ready to get out of here. I'm going to have to go out there and talk to another person. I don't know. And I went, Oh, that's, that's the feeling. That's that feeling. It's, it's like, I don't try. I don't need to believe my feelings. That's not who I want to be. So I said a prayer. I gave that feeling up and went back out and started talking to someone. I don't know. You know, I had the best time all day at that reunion and talking to everyone and everyone was friendly. Actually, other people are uncomfortable as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Most humans yeah. are uncomfortable talking to a bunch of people that they don't know. Uh -huh. So go figure it's, it's, <laughs> it's with all of us and it's not like a unique feeling. And it's true enough that just by asking some questions, all of a sudden I'm in a conversation and it's fine. So it's interesting to be aware. And I think what sobriety, long-term sobriety is about being awake and aware of what I'm feeling. And yes, 100%. Absolutely. And, and I you love know, the way that you described that, Don, because you said, you know, I, I put away the feeling. I just, I let go of the feeling. There are therapies that are coming about regularly that they'll put these words on things and make it a new therapeutic technique that it's so <laughs> wonderful 
And every single fucking one of them is something that I learned in AA. Okay. <laughs> it's the cheapest therapy around it it really is beautiful because i know that i needed a therapist because i needed somebody who i could trust and i could sue if they broke my confidentiality <laughs> you know but I, but I also really had the principles of the program thrown back to me regularly in therapy susan mm-hmm. i gotta say for you to talk about this right now is just perfect because there's something that I wanted to touch base with you on. I'm so grateful that I got to be in AA meetings with you in my early recovery years. I remember we were sitting in a meeting in a church basement and that meeting was going off the rails. And what happened was you shared and you didn't make any of the people wrong who had been sharing before you that had been sending the meeting off the rails. But you shared about why you were there for solution to not drinking and to living your life without wanting to drink. And the way that you brought that meeting back on track was just such a, uh, it was a powerful moment for me. I've only seen a handful of people do this. Well, let me just say that this, thank you, first of all, for saying that, Sam, and it really is important because, you know, when I came into recovery, one of the things I really did here after I really put down all the chemicals was that we don't think our way into clean living. We live our way into clean thinking. And that was absolutely imperative for me because my brain and my thinking were so convoluted. And so I watched people Mm -hmm. and I listened to people and I saw who I wanted to be like and I saw who I didn't want to be like. And I have literally seen people chased out of meetings for just announcing something about themselves that didn't appease somebody else's you know, uh, parameters of what the meeting was all about. And so I learned, gosh, I never want to unwelcome somebody in the rooms. And I watched the way because I would get furious. I mean, I'm sure you could look at me and see my jugular poking out when when those meetings would go off track. And I'd be like, in my head, God, is somebody going to say something? Is somebody going to get this fucking meeting back on track? Where are we going? This doesn't have anything. You know, all the chatter was just so rampant in my brain. And I watched people and the person who spoke up would typically do it with such grace. There was no badgering. There was no shaming. There was no ill intent toward anybody. There was a, a genuine love that I saw taking place. And that love of the newcomer, that love and tolerance are our code, that love and tolerance of seeing old timers go back to, we share our experience, strength, and hope, and they would share their experience, strength, and hope, and the meeting would automatically recorrect. You know, Mm -hmm. it was something that, oh my gosh, I want to be like that when I grow up. (laughs) And, And occasionally, occasionally, I find myself in a meeting where I feel my jugular starting to poke out of my, you know, raise my necklace. (laughs) And I think, okay, love and tolerance are our code. How do you say what you need to say with love? What was the topic? God, if there's something you want me to say, then give me the words to say. And if not, just give me the ears to listen. Susan, I say that in meetings so frequently. Yeah. So it like really is for me coming back to the source and coming back to it ain't me because I do have self-will. What am I going to consciously attempt to connect with that I can open myself to give to others? I want to be a conduit of something that I see in other people. I certainly don't ever want to be that person who sends a newcomer somewhere back out to the next drink. Yeah. Susan, I hate to, we got to leave it there. We could totally turn this into a two-parter. I know I could just sit here and keep on chatting and chatting, (laughs) but that owl behind you is getting a little itchy. It looks like he's about to swoop. 
It's time for our old timers question. Who you calling an old timer? That scared me. You. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. Well, no matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at a time. That's the way it works for all of us. Thank you, crusty old timer. Uh, you can post a question at boiledowlaa.org. Uh, so we have a question here. Let me just spin the, the boiled owl questions for the old timer wheel here. And let's go to Frank in Pennsylvania, who asks, what did you look for in a sponsor? Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. And hard to figure out at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I was afraid of asking someone, I would <laughs> say ambivalent, because at that time I wasn't into saying I was afraid, but I was afraid <laughs> of asking someone to be my sponsor because I didn't, I was afraid they were going to start telling me what to do. Oh no. And frankly, that feeling was exactly the same when I, I changed sponsors at about five, seven years then it was the same feeling again when I at my sponsor moved and I changed sponsors 20 years and exactly the same feeling. Oh no, I've got to ask someone. They're going to tell me what to do and I might not want to do it. It's worked out fine every time because I think what I've always looked for in a sponsor is somebody Susan talked about earlier wanting what they have going to meetings and seeing people share. For me, it's finding someone who's working the steps and it's clear that they're working their steps in their life because they're not angry and they seem to be sharing their experience and they seem to be working the program. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I like to find someone who doesn't have this underlying anger because frankly, if they're running around angry, I don't think that they're working the program. <laughs> People are at different levels with that and can be, you can certainly be working the program and be dealing with anger because we were talking about peeling the onion. So it's wherever it is. And they might go to bed angry. They might be coming to the meeting angry. <gasps> Damn it! <laughs> like I wouldn't want as a sponsor, Krusty, the old timer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Krusty'd uh, be a little rough. <laughs> he'd be a kind of a rough one. I would, there's lots of different ways of sponsoring intuitively people know, I think what they need and what they want and are, are kind of drawn to it. And there was a period of time where I really needed a lot of guidance and I knew I needed a lot of guidance because I didn't know, I really didn't know how to live through the night without drinking. And then later on, I wanted a, a softer touch. And, and so Look for someone who's not angry and is working the program. That's my answer. Thanks, Don. Susan, what did you look for in a sponsor? I, I love this question. And I'm thinking about what Don shared. It, it was the same for me. I was looking for somebody who had what I wanted. And remember that I, I hadn't yet unfogged my brain when I got here. So I was actually looking for somebody who is just a little bit more laid back than the rest. And I really didn't even know what that meant. And who had a lot more fun and was a lot more like loose with things than some of the rigid rules I heard, which weren't rules at all. They were simply suggestions. <laughs> and so I never did find that person. But the uh, my first sponsor, the one I was telling you about, came back to give me that one-year chip again. She was another like direct appointment from my source because she and I were working together at Shoney's and one day she overheard me talking about friends of Bill and she asked me on a break, hey, are you a friend of Bill? And I said, yes. And she said, well, I am too. And we got talking and she said, who's your sponsor? And I said, well, I'm still looking. I don't really have one yet and blah, blah, blah. She said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to appoint myself your sponsor until you find one. And I thought, oh, isn't that nice? And when I was driving home from work that day, I thought, 
oh my God, who am I that I allowed her to appoint herself my sponsor? And it shocked me so much that I really listened to what she was saying. And, and she really is, she and her marijuana maintenance program that she talked about in her story that didn't work for her really are part of what got me to eventually get free from the compulsion to put substances in my body to alter myself. And uh, I think you're right that every sponsor I've had along the way, I've kind of looked for what I've wanted. And so those things have become less tangible and more intangible. Like who is it in the rooms who has a sense of humor who shares when they're feeling good and when they're going through the shits? Who is it that always brings it back to the solution and the steps and the suggestions? And those are the people I gravitate toward. I'll never forget my boss one time said, you're, you're attracted to like old women, aren't you? I said, well, you know, <laughs> whatever. But I've had a lot of, uh, a lot of old timer women who, like Ruth, who was 90 when, when she died. And, and I'll never forget, I took her to one of the last meetings she went to and, and she hadn't been going. And I said, Ruth, you know, why don't you just let me take you to a meeting sometime when I'm going? And she said, well, you know, and Ruth was very straight up, you know, she said, well, you know, I could die at any time. And I said, well, damn, you get in my little sports car with me and start to have problems. I'm going to whip it off the side of the road and call 911. You know, I'm not going to try to do anything. And she went to a meeting with me the next week. You know, so it's this straight up being real, being authentic, being in the solution, not shying away from life. Like Don said, when I'm when I'm scared. I go into that bathroom and I bitch a little bit and then I go regroup and I go back out there and I act opposite my emotions. And <laughs> wow, you know, I love you guys. And I really appreciate you letting me have this conversation with you today because it's reminded me of a whole lot of really good stuff. Oh, man. Uh, Susan, thank you so much. Frank, thank you so much for your question. You know, the first person that I asked to sponsor me said no. And he didn't just say no. He was like, I'm full up, but I've got a sponsee that could work with you. But it took everything I had in me to ask him. Um, so there was no way I could ask that sponsee to do it. And I was having dinner with friends in the rooms that I had made in these eight months that I had been in the rooms without a sponsor. And one of them, Tiffany, uh, was sitting beside me at dinner that night. And she was like, well, Sam, I'll be your temporary sponsor. And she was my temporary sponsor for four years. So she appointed herself my sponsor. And, and it was fantastic. I worked the steps with her, got the results working the steps, and, and everything was fabulous. And I just want to throw this out there because um, in subsequent sponsors, several after Tiffany, I chose people. And I thought that I was doing things right, but what I was doing was picking people that I wanted to impress. And in doing that, I was not as open and vulnerable with them as I should have been, as I could have been. And when I ultimately wound up sponsoring myself, even though I had a sponsor, I, you know, I didn't work the steps with all those other sponsors. And bad ideas sounded good. And I did uh, poppers and diet pills in a way that's not sober for me. And in 2012, I reset my sobriety date. And my new sponsor was assigned to me. And then after that, one of the things that I found that worked so well for me, and it's what I've been doing since, is not only do I work the steps with every sponsor that I get, but instead of me picking a sponsor, I look just like we're talking about so many people look for what's attractive, who's got what I want. I pay attention to those people in the rooms. And then I go up to one of them who I trust and I really respect what they're up to. And I ask them, who do you think would be a good sponsor for me? And that has worked out really well for me. So you outsource it. I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next time I'm just going to say I outsource it. Don. <laughs> then your guest is going to say, what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. 
Susan, thanks so much for being here today. This has been fantastic. Indeed. So glad you joined us. Thank you, Sam. I appreciate you both. Watch out for that owl. It's getting a little frisky there. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl Podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. If you'd like to contribute to help... Sam, we've got good news and we got bad news. (laughs) Let's tell them the bad news, Don. This is the last recording of The Boiled Owl. Wah, 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 wah. I know, I know. It's it's really a hard decision for us. Gosh, we've been doing this over four years. It has been a wonderful experience. Look how many people we've gotten to know over this time. We've gotten to know friends better, and we've gotten to know strangers who were friends we hadn't met yet. We've gotten to know how strange strangers can really be. And we've really gotten to know how strange you are. And we know that you are often called Mr. Strange Love. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now that y'all know the bad news, Don, tell them the good news. Man, is this good news. And this is why we're not really depressed about it. We are the new hosts for the Grapevine Magazine podcast which is the A.A. Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour. (laughs) We're going to bring our usual nonsense to the grapevine. (laughs) We are, and there's all kinds of information that will be coming out on the uh, web page for it, which is aagrapevine.org slash podcast. aagrapevine.org slash podcast. The first episode is going to be in October. We'll put a message in this feed when that appears so you know one of the changes that's going on is instead of being twice a month the grapevine podcast is going to be published every monday nobody told me that (laughs) you got more work to do don (laughs) (laughs) yeah but all i have to do is sit here and sound pretty (laughs) yeah and it doesn't matter one bit how you look The whole package, it's like a variety. Put all the half hour episodes together, it's still the same amount of content, but with a lot more variety. Unless there's five Mondays in that month. Nobody told me that. (laughs) So here's where we say goodbye and say hello. Well, we'll say hello on the other podcast. We're going to say goodbye and thank you here. Goodbye and thank you. And now let us let the oil boil in. And now (laughs) let us let the owl boil in oil. No, what? Now let us let. Let's put a lid on this pot, Don. (laughs) (laughs) Now I think we should go into that fabulous 1970s end of the TV broadcast day static. (sighs) 